Book Two, Sections Twenty One through Twenty Three of King Cole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. King Cole by Upton Sinclair. Book Two, The Serfs of King Cole, Section Twenty One. The marshal went out, and a few moments later the jailer came back with a meal which presented a surprising contrast to the ones he had previously served. There was a tray containing cold ham, a couple of soft-boiled eggs, some potato salad, and a cup of coffee with rolls and butter. "'Well, well,' said Hal, condescendingly, "'that's even nicer than beefsteak and mashed potatoes.' He sat and watched, not offering to help, while the other made room for the tray on the table in front of him. Then the man stalked out, and Hal began to eat. Before he had finished, the camp-marshal returned. He seated himself in his revolving chair, and appeared to be meditative. Between bites, Hal would look up and smile at him. "'Cotton,' said he, "'you know there is no more certain test of breeding than table manners. You will observe that I have not tucked my napkin in my neck, as Alec Stone would have done.' "'I'm getting you,' replied the marshal. Hal set his knife and fork side by side on his plate. "'Your man has overlooked the finger-bowl,' he remarked. "'However, don't bother. You might ring for him now and let him take the tray.' The camp-marshal used his voice for a bell, and the jailer came. "'Unfortunately,' said Hal, "'when your people were searching me night before last, they dropped my purse, so I have no tip for the waiter.' The waiter glared at Hal as if he would like to bite him, but the camp-marshal grinned. "'Clear out, Gus, and shut the door,' said he. Then Hal stretched his legs and made himself comfortable again. "'I must say I like being your guest better than being your prisoner.' There was a pause. "'I've been talking it over with Mr. Cartwright,' began the marshal. "'I've got no way of telling how much of this is bluff that you've been giving me, but it's evident enough that you're no miner. You may be some new-fangled kind of agitator, but I'm damned if I ever saw an agitator that had tea-party manners. I suppose you've been brought up to money. But if that's so, why you want to do this kind of thing is more than I can imagine. Tell me, Cotton, said Hal, did you never hear of ennui? Yes, replied the other, but aren't you rather young to be troubled with that complaint? Suppose I've seen others suffering from it, and wanted to try a different way of living from theirs. If you're what you say, you ought to be still in college. I go back for my senior year this fall. What college? You doubt me still, I see, said Hal, and smiled. Then, unexpectedly, with a spirit which only moonlit campuses and privilege could beget, he chanted, Old King Cole was a merry old soul, and a merry old soul was he. He made him a college all full of knowledge, hurrah for you and me. What college is that? asked the marshal, and Hal sang again. Oh, Liza, and come out with me. The moon is a shining in the monkey puzzle tree. Oh, Liza, and I have began to sing you the song of Harrigan. Well, well, commented the marshal when the concert was over. Are there many more like you at Harrigan? 
A little group, enough to leaven the lump. And this is your idea of a vacation? No, it isn't a vacation. It's a summer course in practical sociology. Oh, I see, said the marshal, and he smiled in spite of himself. All last year we let the professors of political economy hand out their theories to us. But somehow the theories didn't seem to correspond with the facts. I said to myself, I've got to check them up. You know the phrases, perhaps, individualism, laissez-faire, freedom of contract, the right of every man to work for whom he pleases. And here you see how the theories work out. A camp marshal with a cruel smile on his face and a gun on his hip, breaking the laws faster than a governor can sign them. The camp marshal decided suddenly that he had had enough of this tea party. He rose to his feet to cut matters short. If you don't mind, young man, said he, we'll get down to business. End of section 21 Section 22 He took a turn about the room, then he came and stopped in front of Hal. He stood with his hands thrust into his pockets, with a certain jaunty grace that was out of keeping with his occupation. He was a handsome devil, Hal thought, in spite of his dangerous mouth and the marks of dissipation on him. "'Young man,' he began, with another effort at geniality, "'I don't know who you are, but you're wide awake. You've got your nerve with you, and I admire you. So I'm willing to call the thing off, and let you go back and finish that course at college.' Hal had been studying the other's careful smile. "'Cotton,' he said at last, "'let me get the proposition clear. I don't have to say I took that money?' "'No, we'll let you off from that.' "'And you won't send me to the pen?' "'No, I never meant to do that, of course. I was only trying to bluff you. All I ask is that you clear out and give our people a chance to forget.' "'But what's there in that for me, Cotton? If I had wanted to run away, I could have done it any time during the last eight or ten weeks.' "'Yes, of course, but now it's different. Now it's a matter of my consideration.' "'Cut out the consideration!' exclaimed Hal. "'You want to get rid of me, and you'd like to do it without trouble. "'But you can't, so forget it.' The other was staring, puzzled. "'You mean you expect to stay here?' "'I mean just that.' "'Young man, I've had enough of this. "'I've got no more time to play. "'I don't care who you are. "'I don't care about your threats. "'I'm the marshal of this camp, "'and I have the job of keeping order in it. I say you're going to get out. But Cotton, said Hal, this is an incorporated town. I have a right to walk on the streets, exactly as much right as you. I'm not going to waste time arguing. I'm going to put you into an automobile and take you down to Pedro. And suppose I go to the district attorney and demand that he prosecute you. He'll laugh at you. And suppose I go to the governor of the state. He'll laugh still louder. All right, Cotton, maybe you know what you're doing, but I wonder, I wonder just how sure you feel. Has it never occurred to you that your superiors might not care to have you take these high-handed steps? My superiors? Who do you mean? 
"'There's one man in the state you must respect, even though you despise the district attorney and the governor. That is Peter Harrigan.' "'Peter Harrigan?' echoed the other, and then he burst into a laugh. "'Well, you are a merry lad!' Hal continued to study him, unmoved. "'I wonder if you're sure he'll stand for everything you've done.' "'He will,' said the other. "'For the way you treat the workers? He knows you are giving short weights?' "'Oh, hell,' said the other. "'Where do you suppose he got the money for your college?' There was a pause. At last the marshal asked defiantly, "'Have you got what you want?' "'Yes,' replied Hal. "'Of course I thought it all along, but it's hard to convince other people. Old Peter's not like most of these western wolves, you know. He's a pious high church man.' The marshal smiled grimly. "'So long as there are sheep,' said he, "'there'll be wolves in sheep's clothing.' "'I see,' said Hal. "'And you leave them to feed on the lambs.' "'If any lamb is silly enough to be fooled by that old worn-out skin,' remarked the marshal, "'it deserves to be eaten.' Hal was studying the cynical face in front of him. "'Cotton,' he said, "'the shepherds are asleep, but the watchdogs are barking. Haven't you heard them?' "'I hadn't noticed.' "'They are barking, barking.' They are going to wake the shepherds. They are going to save the sheep. Religion don't interest me, said the other, looking bored. Your kind any more than old Peter's. And suddenly Hal rose to his feet. Cotton, said he, my place is with the flock. I'm going back to my job at the tipple. And he started towards the door. End of section 22 Section 23 Jeff Cotton sprang forward. Stop! he cried. But Hal did not stop. See here, young man, cried the marshal. Don't carry this joke too far. And he sprang to the door just ahead of his prisoner. His hand moved toward his hip. Draw your gun, Cotton, said Hal, and, as the marshal obeyed, now I will stop. If I obey you in future, it will be at the point of your revolver. The marshal's mouth was dangerous-looking. You may find that in this country there's not so much between the drawing of a gun and the firing of it. I've explained my attitude, replied Hal. What are your orders? Come back and sit in this chair. So Hal sat, and the marshal went to his desk and took up the telephone. Number seven, he said, and waited a moment. That you, Tom? Bring the car right away. He hung up the receiver, and there followed a silence. Finally, Hal inquired, I'm going to Pedro? There was no reply. I see I've got on your nerves, said Hal, but I don't suppose it's occurred to you that you deprived me of my money last night. Also, I've an account with the company, some money coming to me for my work. What about that? The marshal took up the receiver and gave another number. Hello, Simpson, this is Cotton. Will you figure out the time of Joe Smith, Buddy, and number two, and send over the cash? Get his account at the store, and be quick, we're waiting for it. He's going out in a hurry. Again he hung up the receiver. 
"'Tell me,' said Hal, "'did you take that trouble for Mike Sicoria?' There was silence. "'Let me suggest that when you get my time you give me part of it in scrip. I want it for a souvenir.' Still there was silence. "'You know,' persisted the prisoner tormentingly, "'there's a law against paying wages in scrip.' The marshal was goaded to speech. "'We don't pay in scrip.' "'But you do, man, you know you do. "'We give it when they ask their money ahead.' "'The law requires you to pay them twice a month, and you don't do it. "'You pay them once a month, and meantime, if they need money, "'you give them this imitation money. "'Well, if it satisfies them, where's your kick?' "'If it doesn't satisfy them, you put them on the train and ship them out?' The marshal sat in silence, tapping impatiently with his fingers on the desk. "'Cotton,' Hal began again, "'I'm out for education, and there's something I'd like you to explain to me, a problem in human psychology. When a man puts through a deal like this, what does he tell himself about it?' "'Young man,' said the marshal, "'if you'll pardon me, you are getting to be a bore.' "'Oh, but we've got an automobile ride before us.' "'Surely we can't sit in silence all the way.' After a moment he added in a coaxing tone, "'I really want to learn, you know. You might be able to win me over.' "'No,' said Cotton, promptly. "'I'll not go in for anything like that.' "'But why not?' "'Because I'm no match for you in long-windedness. I've heard you agitators before. You're all alike. You think the world is run by talk, but it isn't.' Hal had come to realize that he was not getting anywhere in his duel with the camp marshal. He had made every effort to get somewhere. He had argued, threatened, bluffed, he had even sung songs for the marshal. But the marshal was going to ship him out. That was all there was to it. Hal had gone on with the quarrel, simply because he had to wait for the automobile, and because he had endured indignities and had to vent his anger and disappointment. But now he stopped quarreling suddenly. His attention was caught by the marshal's words, "'You think the world is run by talk.' Those were the words Hal's brother always used. And also the marshal had said, "'You agitators!' For years it had been one of the taunts Hal had heard from his brother. "'You will turn into one of these agitators!' Hal had answered with boyish obstinacy, "'I don't care if I do!' And now, here, the marshal was calling him an agitator, seriously, without an apology, without the license of blood relationship. He repeated the words, "'That's what gets me about you agitators. You come in here trying to stir these people up.' So that was the way Hal seemed to the GFC. He had come here intending to be a spectator to stand on the deck of the steamer and look down into the ocean of social misery. He had considered every step so carefully before he took it. He had merely tried to be a check weighman, nothing more. He had told Tom Olson he would not go in for unionism. He had had a distrust of union organizers, of agitators of all sorts, blind, irresponsible persons who went about stirring up dangerous passions, he had come to admire Tom Olson, but that had only partly removed his prejudices. 
Olson was only one agitator, not the whole lot of them. But all his consideration for the company had counted for nothing. Likewise, all his efforts to convince the marshal that he was a leisure-class person. In spite of all Hal's tea-party manners, the marshal had said, "'You agitators!' What was he judging by, Hal wondered? Had he, Hal Warner, come to look like one of these blind, irresponsible persons? It was time that he took stock of himself. Had two months of dirty work in the bowels of the earth changed him so? The idea was bound to be disconcerting to one who had been a favorite of the ladies. Did he talk like it? He who had been kissing the Blarney Stone? The marshal had said he was long-winded. Well, to be sure, he had talked a lot, but what could the man expect, having shut him up in jail for two nights and a day, with only his grievances to brood over? Was that the way real agitators were made, being shut up with grievances to brood over? Hal recalled his broodings in the jail. He had been embittered. He had not cared whether North Valley was dominated by labor unions. But that had all been a mood, the same as his answer to his brother. That was jail psychology, a part of his summer course in practical sociology. He had put it aside, but apparently it had made a deeper impression upon him than he had realized. It had changed his physical aspect. It had made him look and talk like an agitator. It had made him irresponsible, blind. Yes, that was it. All this dirt, ignorance, disease, this knavery and oppression, this maiming of men in body and soul in the coal camps of America, all this did not exist. It was the hallucination of an irresponsible brain. There was the evidence of Hal's brother and the camp marshal to prove it. There was the evidence of the whole world to prove it. The camp marshal and his brother and the whole world could not be blind, and if you talked to them about these conditions, they shrugged their shoulders, they called you a dreamer, a crank, they said you were off your trolley, or else they became angry and bitter, they called you names, they said, you agitators. End of section 23